with you guys something today. Um, uh, this has been on my heart for a couple of weeks. Um, all right. And we have a potluck today. And just to give you guys an update, we don't, I don't really know when the Zoom meeting for the Grange will be. Uh, Chris is anticipating it'll be this week where we, we will, they will look at our offers that we have made and hopefully they'll accept option number one, which is just to pay for this. We have the money to pay it out right cash. That way we don't have any debt, which I just love the idea of a church not having debt. And so, um, so to be able to pay that cash, um, that's the goal. The second option is we did offer if they wanted to um, allow us to make payments, we did do that. So that gives us more money to be able to put into the building for the repairs. There's thousands of dollars that we have to do pretty quickly. And so uh, many thousands, a couple hundred thousand. So uh, we'll probably spend $200,000 within the first year, I'm anticipating. And then every year after that, it will, it'll go down, but it'll, you're talking maybe 100,000, 50,000 at a time. You know, and that's something that we'll talk, talk about when we have our vision board Sister Christie's going to make. <laughs> Very awesome. Amen. So just really excited. There's a lot of good things. But today, um, I want to start with uh, Psalm chapter 56, verse 89, or verse 8 and 9. If we could stand to honor God's word. Um, Psalm 56, verse 8 and 9. Thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. Amen. I'm going to pick on somebody new today. Who have, don't I normally pick on? Um, Brother Frank, would you ask the Lord to bless this message today? Amen. You may be seated. So I wanted to title this message, Treasured Tears. Treasured Tears. A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting in our family room there talking with Brother Fernando. And he told me, he said, he said, Pastor, this passage in Psalm 56 has been on my heart. And I said, well, let's look it up. So I opened my iPad and I went to the scripture and I began to read it and then I began to look at the words and then really pay attention to the words and then I just I was sitting there for some time and the room just went quiet and he's sitting there looking at me and I'm like this looking down and studying and then after a while no, you could hear a pin drop in the room. No talking, no exchange of words. I was just lost in this scripture. He said, Pastor, what's on your mind? <laughs> just like that. And I said, uh, Brother Fernando, do you know what a lacrimatory is? A lacrimatory? Anyone know what that is? Well, I didn't really either. Um, but a lacrimatory is a tear bottle. And you can look this up. If you were to pull up this scripture, 
and you just read, start reading commentaries on it, they're talking about lacrimatories. These are little bottles, maybe about the size of a perfume bottle, one to four inches. And they would collect their tears. Let me read to you. There is a website, lacrimatory.com, that gives the history. This guy has dedicated this website just to these tear bottles. And just, there's a whole section on the history. I'm going to read you some of the stuff. Tear bottles were fairly common in Roman times, around the time of Jesus Christ. When mourners filled small glass bottles or cups with tears and placed them in burial tombs as symbols of respect. Sometimes women were even paid to cry into these vessels as they walked along the mourning procession. Those crying the loudest and producing the most tears received the most compensation. Or so the legend goes. The more anguish and tears produced, the more important and valued the deceased person was perceived to be. Tear bottles reappeared during the Victorian period of the 19th century when those mourning the loss of loved ones would collect their tears in bottles with special stoppers that allowed the tears to evaporate. When the tears had evaporated, the mourning period would end. In some American Civil War stories, women were said to have cried into tear bottles and saved them until their husbands returned from battle. Their collected tears would show the men how much they were adored and missed. The tear bottle tradition has historically been a mourning tradition. Only in contemporary times have tears of joy and inspiration been captured in current music and literature. Tear bottles have once again been rom romanticized. References to the power of the tear bottle tradition occur in contemporary music, videos, novels, and poetry. Contemporary tear bottles are created by glass artists around the world and a few successful manufacturers. T today, lacrimatory bottles may also be called a tear bottle. They can also be called a tear catcher, a tear vial, and I don't even know how to say this word, an unguentaria or unguentarium. There are also several less common spellings for lacrimatory, including, and then it gives it other spellings. The sizes of tear bottles, and that's about one to four inches. And uh, one half inch is the shortest and four inches is the tallest that this particular author had seen. But if there was a group of crying people, let's say somebody had passed away and there was a lot of people crying, they could take uh, maybe a cloth and they can go and they can wipe the tears away from people and they could wring out that cloth, those teardrops into a container. And so um, the more tears it is said, the more love, the more mourning the loss of a loved one. So according to the American Academy of Ophthalmology, you make 15 to 30 gallons of tears every year. Your tears are produced by lacrimal glands located above your eyes. Tears spread across the surface of the eye when you blink. They then drain into small holes in the corners of your upper and lower lids before traveling through small channels and down your tear ducts to your nose. 
While tear production can slow down due to certain factors, such as health and aging, you don't actually run out of tears. And so I began to think about, as I was sitting there and looking at pictures of the crematories and just imagining opening these tombs, and they have opened old tombs and they've seen these little bottles, a bunch of little bottles, of course, dried out by the, you know, after many, many years, all the tears had dried out. But this showed that people had cried lots of tears and they were put into uh, these, uh, these places where these Romans were buried. And I began to think about tears. I be, anyone here ever cried before? A couple people? Yeah, pretty much all of us. Um, but I began to think about our Lord. The Bible says in a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we could read about that in Isaiah 53. And Isaiah the prophet writes, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And my iPad just jumped to the bottom of the document. I have to scroll back up here. Um, he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Jesus was a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. And so I want to look at some scriptures. When Jesus wept, when Jesus cried, of course, the shortest verse in the Bible, John chapter 11, verse 35. You guys can all probably quote it, right? The shortest verse in the Bible, it is Jesus wept. What does that say to you? Why did Jesus weep? Now, if you look at previously in that same chapter, if you look at verse 21, you'll see that Martha had came to Jesus and their brother Lazarus had just died, you know, and he was in the tomb. He was there for four days. And she came to him and she said, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. And they had a discussion. Jesus did not weep. And then if you look later on, Mary hears that Jesus is there. And she comes in verse 32. And she says the same exact words that Martha, her sister, had said. Exactly. 
Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. The difference is her posture was a little bit different. She fell down at his feet and she began to weep. We can see this in those verses here. Verse 33, next verse. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and he was troubled. Why did Jesus weep? It may not be the answer that I used to think it was all those years. Maybe that's a part of it. But look at verse 34. And he said, where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. And the very next verse, verse 35, is Jesus wept. So this is the context concerning Lazarus's death. And so at first, you know, Jesus knew. He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And Martha came, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. They had a discussion. He said, don't you believe I'm the resurrection and the life? And, and uh, you know, the, all that. She goes, I know he'll rise in the last day and all that other stuff. No, I'm, I am the resurrection and the life. That's what he said. And so then Mary comes along and she begins to weep. And those that were with her, Mary's friends, also wept. And this got Jesus' attention. He groaned in the spirit. He was moved. Was it because Mary wept and those that were with her? Maybe that's part of it. That's what I used to always think. But there's another thing. There's another angle that maybe I had never thought about before. And that is that Lazarus had already received his reward. Lazarus was already in a wonderful, joyous place. And he was rejoicing. Imagine just being in just a great place and all of a sudden, sorry, you got to come back because your family needs you. Your sisters need you. They need you to take care of them, you know, like he always did. And so Jesus wept considering that here's Lazarus already received his reward. So I began to think about it from that angle. Jesus his tear, every tear that he cried shows so much about him. It shows how much he cares, how much compassion he has, how much love, how he can be moved to tears. The Bible does say, if you look up the phrase moved with compassion, it's five times in the scripture. And he can be moved with compassion. And so those Jews, after Jesus wept. In the very next verse, verse 36, they said, Behold how he loved him. They said, Behold how Jesus must have loved that Lazarus, right? That was their response. That's what they thought. Now, the second time that I see in Scripture that Jesus wept and that he cried is found in Luke chapter 19. Look at verse 41. When he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. When Jesus, before his crucifixion, when he got near Jerusalem, when he saw it, he wept over Jerusalem. The ones that didn't treat him so good, the ones that he knew were about to crucify him. Would you or I do that for somebody who's betrayed us? 
Would you or I do that for someone who's about to, you know, do some, kill us? I don't know. We probably wouldn't shed much tears, right? But he wept over Jerusalem, saying, if thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine eyes shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. They shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. If you had only knew, known, if you had only known the time of your visitation, the very God who manifests himself in flesh visited the earth, Emmanuel, God with us, if you had only known. And so there are people in this world who are in pain. There's people in this world who are suffering. Even those who do not seem to be in pain, there's those who seem to be doing really well. They have everything. You ask them, how's things going? Great. Everything's perfect. Um, but we know that if nothing changes in their life, that the end of it all is not going to be so good for them. But do we even care? Can we be moved with compassion like Jesus was moved with compassion? That song, Sister Kathy, that you sent to me after Brother Dibble preached that message, do you remember the song that you sent to me by Brandon Heath? Give me your eyes. Have you ever prayed to see like he sees, to love like he loves, to care like he cares? Jesus cared even for those who rejected him, and that's not likely something we would do. Oh, if they had only known. This next passage of Hebrews 5, 7 we're going to be going into detail on this on Tuesday night when we talk about the garden prayer battle. But here it says in verse 7 of Hebrews, who in the days of his flesh, referring to Jesus, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. He feared in that he was heard. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience. Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is Jesus Christ. Imagine what Jesus Christ experienced. Everyone here has sinned. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? So we've all sinned. We've all made mistakes. We've all blown it. And Jesus took every one of those iniquities, every one of our transgressions, every one of our sins, and he who knew no sin, he became sin for us in our place so that we don't have to die. As by one man sin entered into the world, Romans 5 tells us, and death by sin, 
right? So death pass upon all men for that all have sinned. But it goes on. Just as one man brought sin into the world, so by the death of one, one shall many be made righteous. So you have that first Adam and then you have the last Adam, which is Jesus Christ. And so he took sin upon him. Imagine him who had never experienced sin. The first time you ever really sinned, you done something you knew that wasn't right. Uh, did, you, did you ever feel guilt? Did you ever feel shame? Did you ever feel embarrassed when you, if you got caught? All those feelings, whatever he went through. And as he knelt and he prayed, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit here. Um, this shows something that our Lord experienced. And he wept with strong crying and strong tears there in the garden. These are precious tears. How many know, here know the difference between sympathy and empathy? Being bad, you should know. Because you're, the friend that used to come here had our stuff at our property, he'd always say, you know the difference between sympathy and empathy, right? Zach, he always would, uh, you know the difference between sympathy and empathy. You know, sometimes I can sympathize because I've been through what you've been through. I've experienced what you've experienced. But empathy, they say, is trying your best to understand, even though you may not have been through what they've been through. Trying your best to be able to understand, put yourself in their shoes. Jesus did. He is the God who became man. He is the God who put himself in our shoes. So we can never say, you don't even know what it's like to be a man. You don't even know what it's like to be tempted to experience pain and suffering. And he does know. He knows. And he cares. Right? So... Sympathy versus empathy. I was reading, you know, this is, uh, I wanted to tell you guys that I am going through the classes and the material for ordination. There are three levels of license in the United Pentecostal Church. There's a local license, which I got in 2004, a general license, which I got in 2014. And I figured, hey, another 10 years, 2024, I'll go for my ordination. But the Lord's been really dealing with me because I didn't want to do ordination. I didn't feel like I had to do ordination because uh, it's a little bit more money per month. Not much, but just a little bit more money. And the only difference between that and general in the manual lets, allows me to hold certain positions that I couldn't hold without that ordination. Like superintendent, and all, stuff I don't really care about. And I thought I don't really need to... to be ordained. I don't need the ordination. But when I got my general license, the superintendent of our district, he said to me, since you are a pastor, you really should go for ordination. And so there just blew my whole idea of not going for ordination. So I thought, okay, I wasn't planning on it, but he said it and he's an elder. And then another elder in my life said he believes that we should go for ordination. I called my presbyter uh, Tim Flowers from Reno, and I said, Brother Flowers, I'm considering going. He said, Brother Thorson, you missed the cutoff. He said it used to be there would be a list of reading material. Now they require these classes, and so now I have to take the classes. And so I've been taking these classes. My goal is to finish by October 1st. 
And so one of the classes, there's videos that go along with uh, each class. I was watching these classes. And what, something got my attention concerning sympathy and empathy. Have you ever talked to somebody that uh, said, you know what, you guys don't even know because you've never been through what I've been through? I want to go talk to somebody who's been through what I've been through. Right? And so you have AA, right? Because uh, you never drank alcohol in your life, so how could you know? Right? And so I'm going to go talk to somebody who has drank alcohol in their life. And this one class, this one professor made this great point. He said, he said this thing that just got my attention. Because I've had people tell me that over the years. Well, you don't understand because you've never had alcohol before. You don't understand because, you know, you never did drugs. You, you can't sympathize with me. But I can empathize. Jesus never did, right? But he knows what it's like to experience and take all the sins of men. But this man said something very interesting. He said, I'm just going to just tell you this. If you got cancer, he said, you go to that doctor and say, oh, doctor, excuse me, have you ever had breast cancer? Oh, no, you haven't? Well, then I, I need to go talk to a different doctor. Because you've never been through what I've been through. You don't understand what I've been through. So I'm, I want to find a doctor that's been through what I've been through. I want to say, it doesn't matter if he's got the cure. It doesn't matter that he knows how to make sure that cancer's gone. And so there are people that have the answer. And Jesus is the answer. And maybe I didn't try drugs. And maybe I didn't try alcohol. But I'm going to tell you where the answer's at. And I know he is the answer for the world today. And just like when you went to the doctor, you didn't say, hey, wait, have you experienced this? Well, then I can't, I can't use any help from you. I'm going to go find somebody else that knows exactly what I've been through. And so empathy, sympathy, he does care. And so he took upon him all of our sins. But I want to go a little bit further here. Um, not only does he understand our feelings, he shares our feelings. Jesus was, in fact, God manifest in the flesh. Let's look at John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. He said this, John the Apostle wrote, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it. You know, he's talking about Jesus. And bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Joyful. Amen. He was the God. Jesus is, was the God that was from the beginning. Did you notice the terminology there? It's different than in the beginning. 
that says in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word. This says from the beginning. You can't be from some place that does not exist. So this Jesus that we worship is from the beginning. And who is he? He is the only God manifest in flesh. That God, there, what, did you know that God existed before the beginning? The one and only God existed before the beginning. What do we know about him? That he is absolute. He had never defined himself beyond anything we could know, perceive, and understand. And the moment in time that he began to define himself with words, you know, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. God is love. All the things that he began to define himself starts the beginning. Because when God said God is light, that makes darkness possible. When God is love, that makes the exact opposite possible. That beginning took place before the Genesis 1, 1 beginning. And so God, that, the Greek word is logos for the word word. In the beginning was the word. And John is saying that which was from the beginning. The very definition of God from the beginning, God defined. That is what he's saying in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. He said, uh, the one that we have heard, they heard that God who was from the beginning, that God defined, that God manifest. He said, the one that they had seen with their eyes, we've seen him with our eyes. And he said, we, the one we looked upon, that sounds really close to the previous phrase, right? They had seen with their eyes and they looked upon him, but it's not the same. Looked upon is a little bit more intense to study, to really study with intense and earnest gaze, with a look of desire, with a look of satisfaction and pleasure as one who beholds a beloved object. We didn't just see him with our eyes, but we looked upon him as well. And then he said that their hands had handled. God became a man subject to the sense of touch. And Jesus said in one scripture, behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. He is a God that can be touched. That is the God that we serve and we worship. Thinking about these tears, in the very end, Revelation chapter 7, verse 17 says, For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And let's look again at Let's look again at Revelation 21, verse 3 through 8. I know Brother McAtee read this last week. It says, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. God will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death. Neither sorrow, not even godly sorrow, no sorrow of the world, but nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. 
And he that sat upon the throne, if you have, who here has a red letter edition in their Bible? You got one? Anyone there in Revelation 21 that has a red, that you can look at this real quick? In Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. Anyone see it? The red letters? Do you see it, Sister Katrina? Verse 5. Is there any red letters in that verse? 21.5. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. Any red letters? Anyone know what the red letters stand for? These are the words of Jesus, right? What's it say? Any words in red, sister? Not in your Bible? Well, anyone here have a Bible that has words in red? Because mine has it in red. Some of, the, some of the scriptures don't put it in red. Anyone else have theirs in red? Revelation 21.5? No? Now people are, hey, I better get my Bible. <laughs> Oh, wait, this is, this is Sunday school. This is church. <laughs> we should have the textbook. <laughs> Our textbooks when we come to class. Anyone else have uh, red letters in that verse? Christy's looking. She's looking. The very next verse, right? Yes. Yeah. So this is where, you know, people that do the red letters are like putting their interpretation into it. But this is actually, anyone have it, Christy? Okay. I, I've, I've got it underlined here. If you have an online Bible, anyone here have eSword on their online Bible? Um, in eSword, uh, if you look at verse 5, do you see any red letters? In Revelation 21.5 on Esword. 